Um, yeah, so welcome to the uh, Sport and Leisure History Seminar brought to you by the Society, British Society of Sports Historians and uh, the Institute of Historical Research. Uh, today we have a uh, speaker, Jeff Swallow. Um, Jeff is um, doing his PhD at Manchester Metropolitan University and his PhD is on the circuit of annual swimming matches in Devon and Cornwall. Um, just just going into his final year, he told me. So this is really at the uh, at the pointy end of uh, the PhD experience. So um, I'm sure he'll be looking for, for feedback today on the stuff that he's presenting, um, because this is when when feedback becomes really important, as as you all know who've done PhD when you're coming to doing the writing up. Um, if you want to read some of uh, Jeff's work, then he has um, articles on playing pasts. And if you search for Jeff Swallow on playing pasts, then you'll be able to see it there. And of course, uh, most sports historians know that that's a very valuable resource. Um, Jeff, I, I think, are you ready to go? Yeah, that's fine, Jeff. Yeah. Um, just to remind people, uh, please stay on mute while Jeff's giving his presentation. Uh, there will be opportunities to um, ask questions at the end. Um, which you can put into the chat bar, or if you want to raise your hand, we'll go to you and the floor will be yours. So take it away, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Yesterday upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today, though how I wish he'd go away. We've all known this simple little poem with all its unsettling spatial and temporalizations all our lives. It's no coincidence it was written in 1899, the end of a century in which developments in transport and communications technology were changing the way ordinary people experience time and space. In this paper, I'm going to suggest that the poem might stand as a metaphor for the relationship between what by 1901 was swimming as dominant amateur code and the unsettling and welcoming persistent otherness of professionalism. And I'm going to approach this through a deconstruction of what was called one of the greatest, one of the intended greatest races of history, an event that's been lost to sport history and not as you might think, only for the reason that it never took place. Marconi's ex experiments with wireless technology, uh, wireless telegraphy rather, had begun in the 1890s. And by the end of 1901, he sent the first wireless message across the Atlantic. The first municipal telephone exchanges in England opened in the same year, just as the development of the railways in the 19th century had brought about a compression of distance and time. Electronic communication now suggested the possibility of being in two places at once, or as Stephen Kern put it, the sense of the present expanded spatially to create the vast shared experience of simultaneity. On the evening of the 11th of September 1901, Amateur champion and record holder Jack Jarvis and his professional counterpart Joey Nuttall both swam a 500-yard race for their respective championships. The laws of amateur swimming prohibited their swimming against each other and the two events were held in baths 180 miles apart in Swindon and in Doncaster. Despite this, the conscious shared experience of simultaneity would create a third space a space of modernity in which the two men were brought together outside the conventional frameworks of time and space and the barrier of the amateur professional divide. Each race was a foregone conclusion, but both having announced that they were making an attempt on the 500 yards record, they were effectively 
swimming not just against the clock, but against each other. Those who were present saw not just the race in front of them, but another race defined by the absence yet simultaneous presence of the other. I'll put up there is a, a, a slide that shows the evolution of the national governing body for swimming. And I just want to sort of join it uh, in, uh, in, in eight, uh, 1873 where the, uh, the Swimming Association of, of Great, Great Britain is, is, is formed. Now the, um, the Swimming Association of Great Britain's effectiveness as a proto-national governing body was limited by its fixation on the amateur definition, the source of much internal factionalism and infighting in its early years. The fundamental principle of amateurism was to eradicate competition for financial gain by prohibiting money prizes, which it perceived as an incitement to race fixing and gambling and replacing them with symbolic prizes of strictly limited monetary value. Definitions of what constituted an amateur were constantly and not always consistently being revised in its early years, together with contentious and confusing rulings on circumstances in which amateurs and professionals might be permitted to compete against each other. The Amateur Swimming Association succeeded the Swimming Association of Great Britain in 1886. It projected the professional as other, marginalising, excluding, and closing the door on all who are not recognised within its definition of amateur or amateur standards of behaviour of the amateur code had effectively dried up the supply of professionals at source and virtually eradicated professional swimming in England. The loss of amateur status was an effective lifetime ban on competing anywhere in the country. What the national governing body offered to the sport was a range of practices that are synonymous with modernity regulation, the standardisation of championships and competition distances, the length of baths where competition under its rules could be held, and with it, the mobility it afforded, at least in theory, to compete under the same rules anywhere in the country, rather than under localised rules. I want to focus on just one of those modernising processes, and that's how the measurement of time impacted on the organisation of the sport. When swimming races were first reported in the early 1860s, if they were timed at all, it was the actual clock time from when the race started to when the race finished that they, that they, uh, they, they published. By the late 1860s, they were being reported in elapsed time, which for a race of a thousand yards might be to the nearest half minute, possibly provided by a public clock. The increased portability of time in the shape of pocket watches a process accelerated by the standardisation of railway time and an increased societal awareness of time discipline led to more accurate timekeeping with all times of races being reported in seconds. And by the 1880s, improvements in watch technology, not least that of the stopwatch, allowed in the right skillful hands smaller divisions of time to be measured with more precision down to a fifth of a second. As it became standard practice to time races, it increased the need for a panoply of officials. A judge and umpire were supplemented with timekeepers, starters and check starters. This numerical increase in officialdom was matched with greater degree of specialism in these skilled roles, which in turn increased the accumulation of cultural capital, authority, responsibility and respect accruing to them. After 1893, 
official timekeepers were appointed by the Amateur Swimming Association to all the events held under their jurisdiction. Having races timed over standardised distances and conditions provided an objective measure for comparing one performance against another. This facilitated comparison not just between one race and another in the same place on the same day, but all races over the same distance held in different places and over time, which made possible the compilation of official records. The widespread practice of timing races led inevitably to a reappraisal of records and the conditions for setting them. In May 1893, the ASA set up a record committee and began by investigating existing records. The problem was authenticating them and in cleaning up its record books, a lot of pre-1893 records were struck out, erasing the career achievements of some leading swimmers of the professional era, including all women, and literally resetting the clock. The preoccupation with records that we see during the 1890s is in part, uh, is, is part of a sustained effort to compare amateur and professional standards in order to sustain a narrative of progress that reinforced the amateur ideology. At about the same time, the SA formalized its rules on the conduct of championships, rationalizing these as the standard official national championships. The fact that most of these were held in London and the home counties was a source of contention to the newly formed districts. And after 1893, a fixed number of championships over specified distances were introduced and shared out among the districts in rotation annually. Now looking at the, uh, the amateur ethos and values you know, uh, against those of professionalism as they were perceived by the, by the national governing body. The early divide between amateur and professional was class-based with a handful of elite metropolitan clubs framing the rules around class values that tried to exclude the working class and reflected class tensions at that time. Mutual agreements with other national governing bodies in other sports on suspensions and bans meant the risk of losing one's amateur sorry, meant that the risk of losing one's amateur status would have a significant social as well as sporting impact. Amateurism represented and reflected a set of shared values, order, regulation, respect for rules, fair competition for honour, not for financial gain. Strict control of prizes extended beyond money, for example, to offering prizes to the value of, which were essentially credit notes on local tradesmen, and limiting, and limiting the value of cups and medals, which had to be inscribed to prevent them from being sold on. As working class clubs emerged, even basic items of clothing foodstuffs and domestic commodities such as coal were prescribed as prizes. By contrast, professionalism was associated with a lack of organisation and proper regulation, which led to disputes and disorder. Even by its own accounts, at least in the metropolis, it existed at or near the margins of a criminal underclass. Betting and race fixing were rife. There was no system of properly controlled championships with challenge races instead arranged through articles of agreement between swimmers and their backers only after protracted negotiations on terms which were usually carried on semi-publicly in the sporting press. The hype surrounding these races sold papers and as the sporting press, especially the sporting life, a paper closely associated with horse racing, often acted as promoter, stakeholder, referee, starter and judge. 
Born in Manchester in 1869, Joe Nuttall, the son of a coal hawker, spent most of his life in Staley Red, where he was a sporting hero. By the age of 19, he was already amateur champion of the world at every distance from 100 yards to the mile, and record holder at every distance from 40 yards to 1,066 yards. Dissatisfied with the ASA, it can't have been difficult for potential backers to persuade Nuttall that he could make money as a professional. And in October 1888, after swimming under protest to retain his amateur 200 yards title at Lambeth Baths, 10 days later in the same bath, he publicly renounced his amateur status by spectacularly winning the 1000 yards professional championship, taking nearly 27 seconds off the professional record and setting new standards at all intermediate distances between 100 and 1000 yards in the process. It was reported after the race that Nuttall has found backers to pit him against any swimmer for a monkeyer side. But despite the interest of wealthy sporting men prepared to put up this sort of money to match him against anyone in the world, a, a monkey, £500 in 1888, would be the equivalent of just over £51,000 at today's values. Nuttall was regarded as being far and away too fast for the present generation of swimmers. And he would find it difficult as a professional to find anyone prepared to risk their backers' money to take him on. In 1993, he beat American put practically a stop to Nuttall's prosperous career. Subsequent challenges issued through the sporting press open to the world were not taken up. A challenge issued in October 1893 to Australian champion Ernie Cavill did not come off until 1897, and only then after the race promoter, prominent bookmaker Robert Topping, himself stepped in to underwrite the match, covering both men's £100 stake money, as well as providing what was described as probably the most valuable trophy ever given for swimming to the winner. Originally intended to take place in the Waterloo Lake at Roundhay Park in Leeds, the race billed as the World Championship was eventually held on the 8th of September 1897, over 500 yards at the Doncaster Corporation Baths, on the evening of the St Ledger, the most prestigious classic of the flat racing season after the derby. With the betting on seven to one on Nuttall, the race itself was an anticlimax. He took the lead from the start and was leading by almost 30 yards when the Australian retired at the 300-yard mark. Nuttall carried on to complete the course in a new record time, and he declared he wouldn't swim any more matches after the financial failure of the Cavill match. For the rest of his career, he vowed his opponent would be the stopwatch. The leading amateur swimmer, in 1901 was Jack Jarvis, born in Leicester in 1872, son of a painter and decorator. Although his swimming career began in 1884, it was 1889 before he even won a race, and 1893 before he won his first title. Jarvis's career was closely connected with that of Sam Greasley, another member of the Leicester Club and five years his senior. 
Greasley had won the club championship in 1887, the Midland Counties Championship the following year, and held all Midlands titles at distances from 100 yards to half a mile. In 1890, he set a new record to take the ASA Mile Championship for the first time at Birmingham's Edgbaston Reservoir, a title he would hold for three successive years, lowering his own record on each occasion. He also held the ASA Half Mile Championship in 1891 and 1892. And in August 1892, when his only opponent failed to turn up for the ASA Mile Championship at Exeter, Greasley won over a hostile crowd with a record-breaking swim on his own against the clock, for which the ASA awarded him a special gold medal. But in 18, May 1893, Greasley was stripped of his title and amateur status for selling the trophy that he'd won outright that day. When Greasley lost his amateur status, Jarvis stepped into his mentor's shoes as the leading Midlands amateur, winning the quarter and a half mile Midland Counties Championship that, that year. In 1898, he established himself as one of the country's leading amateurs, winning the quarter mile saltwater championship at Weymouth, the 500 yards championship, the half mile and mile championships, both in near record times, and the long distance championship on the Thames. By 1906, he'd won 24 ASA swimming titles. He also won international success. And less than two weeks before the race in Swindon, uh, that uh, we're focusing on tonight, he'd returned from leading an official English team on a five-city tour of Italy. He's said to have won this, however, in 1900. He won two individual Olympic gold medals in the 1,000 and 4,000 metre races held in the River Seine. He was accompanied there by Greasley, who won the professional through Paris race, which was also held that week. And Jarvis would go on to win three medals at the intercalated 1906 Athens Olympics. And at the age of 36, reached the semi-final of the 1500 metres in London, the Olympics of uh, 1908. Although the sports authorities did their best to maintain the divide between amateur and professional, within the sport there was an element of mutual respect. Some objected to the way that those who were deemed to have infringed amateur rules were treated, whilst others, members of elite home counties clubs, were seen as being whitewashed into amateurs. Almost certainly it was Sam Greasley who first introduced Jarvis and Nuttall in March 1893, when all three appeared in a gala organised by the Tyroo Victor Swimming Club at the Vestry Street Baths in Leicester, where Joe Nuttall, billed as champion of the world, and local man Sam Greasley as amateur champion, both gave exhibitions. Whilst further down the programme, Jarvis swam against Greasley's brother in a club handicap race. Disappointment that Nuttall didn't make his expected attempt to break his own 300 yards record was excused that evening on the grounds that he just accepted, by cable, McCusker's challenge to swim a match in the United States for $5,000 a side and the championship of the world. And this is the match which eventually took place near Rochdale uh, in August 1893, at which both Greasley, by then stripped of his amateur title, and Jarvis were present. As we've seen in his early career, Jarvis benefited from Greasley's mentoring. And after Greasley lost his amateur status, Jarvis continued to benefit from training under him, 
getting around the prohibition on amateurs and professionals swimming together by using the canal at Newton Harcourt, about seven miles from Leicester. Jarvis employed Greasley in his painting and decorating business, which was undoubtedly a cover for paying for his services as a coach, in breach, in spirit, if not in the letter of the amateur code. By 1901, the friendship between Jarvis and Nuttall was such that on census night, the 31st of March, Nuttall was a visitor in the Jarvis household in Leicester, where he may have spent some time recuperating from what one newspaper later described as a slight operation. In April, Nuttall issued a challenge to swim any man in the world from a quarter to one mile for £100 a side and went into training in preparation. Realistically, his only likely ch challenger at that time was Jack Tyres of Manchester, but he refused to swim against Nuttall at any distance over 200 yards. Despite this, in professional circles, there was still optimism that a match between the two might shortly be arranged. When in May 1901, it became generally known that Nuttall was staying and training with Jarvis, it was it evidently raised a few eyebrows, not least among the readership of Athletic News, who were informed that the professional and amateur champions occasioned no surprise, commenting on Nuttall's determination to go into training to be ready for anyone taking up his challenge. It noted, if work is wanted of the right kind, no man in the country furnishes a better example of how to face the task of getting fit than Jarvis. And judging from Nuttall's conduct in the past, when serious business has been intended, he's certain to prove an apt co-worker. Interesting phrases used in that, in that uh, report. Jarvis was well known for his use of rigorous training methods to get himself physically fit for competition. One commentator described him in less than complimentary terms as a short, very weighty and powerfully built man with a great wealth of fat all over his body. It literally hangs from him in some parts his breasts fall like a woman's, and he apparently pulls the beam, that is, weighs, 13 stone, and would quickly run to 17 stone, but for continuous and close training. Apparently, the, the principal features of his, uh, of his preparation was the use of a, a long-handled hammer swung from the back over the shoulders onto a wooden block. Now, whether he encouraged Nuttall to follow this same regime is not known for sure, but in early June 1901, on arriving in Halifax in West Yorkshire to make a, a, an attempt to set aside all records for the 500 yards, not always taken ill, and an examination by a doctor showed indications, indications of heart strain due to overexertion. One newspaper linked this to the operation earlier in the year, from which it said not all had emerged strong and healthy, but was now told that he'd developed a heart condition. Another account implied that it may indeed have been brought on by having been in some time under strict training at Leicester, uh, where although he'd appeared to thrive on his work, during the last week or two, unusual palpitation has followed any great effort on his part, and concluded that the physician's verdict amounted to almost total prohibition of swimming. Joe Wheeler of Manchester, who'd coached Natal for the 1893 match against McCusker, acted quickly, issuing a statement denying not all had a heart condition, which seemed to dispel the rumours, and within a week, more encouraging reports of not all's improving health were appearing in the press. 
month later, the press were upbeat that despite recent reports of Nuttall's uh, health trouble, his challenge to the world was still open and that his prolonged stay with Jarvis at Leicester and the steady training he's undergone appears to have got him back again to his best form. In March 1901, the Southern Counties ASA had proposed that the 500 yards amateur championship that year should be held at the Great Western Railway's Medical Fund Baths in Swindon on the 11th of September. And the date was duly confirmed at the annual meeting of the ASA executive in May. So that was the first of these dates to, to, have, been, uh, to have been set up. After the interruption to Nuttall's training schedule in preparation for a challenge that by July, uh, the by July uh, 1901 had still not materialised, rumours of a great race for a 500 yards champion cup of 50 guineas began to circulate. And it was even whispered that the race would be decided at Doncaster in the St Ledger week, when a big crowd could be confidently expected. The promoter was again bookmaker Robert Topping, who in 1893 had stepped in to provide the stake money for the race between Nuttall and Ernie Cowell. Under the rules of the ASA, the only realistic challenger to Nuttall was tyres, but what the public really wanted to see was a race between Nuttall and Jarvis, between the professional and amateur champion. And Jarvis himself appears to have tried to use his influence to exert pressure on the ASA to sanction such a race. The Manchester Evening News commented that we learn from good authority that the Leicester man wishes to swim not all a mile in public for a trophy. He's quite indifferent as to where or how the association or a club manage it, but there should be a prize and the winner should get it. Not all, we understand, is willing that such a race should take place. But um, sadly, acknowledging that report that uh, red tape and principle would inevitably step in and prevent what he called one of the intended greatest races of history. So to the match itself, the 11th of September, 1901, a momentous date, even then. In Swindon uh, on the evening of the 11th of September, the setting for the 500 yards amateur championship was the 20th annual gala of the Swindon Amateur Swimming Club. In Doncaster, it was again the evening of the St. Ledger, and with the prize of a silver cup, championship gold medal, £10 and two-thirds of the gate money put up by the bookmaker Robert Topping, this was a reprise of Nuttall's match against Cavill of 1878, uh, 1897. Sorry. Both men, Jarvis and Nuttall, were champions at the distance and holders of their respective records. Before the race, Nuttall's professional record stood at 6 minutes 38 and a quarter seconds, set in that race in Doncaster in 1897. Jarvis's amateur record was 6 minutes 42 and 3 fifths seconds, set at Sunderland on the 4th of October 1899. Both men had clocked faster times for the distance. In 1890, before his home crowd in Staley Ridge, Nuttall had swum 500 yards in 6 minutes 28, but this had been in a bath of 20 yards length and the SA didn't recognise records set in baths less than 25 yards. Only a month earlier, Jarvis had reportedly swum the distance in 6 minutes 23 in a 33 and a third yard bath, when according to witnesses, he'd eased off and could have done it in at least 6 seconds faster. In Doncaster, not all lined up against three other swimmers, 
for the 500 yards professional championship. His only real contender being his old mentor, Sam Grizzly. In Swindon, Jarvis's challenge, sorry, Sam Grizzly was of course Jarvis's mentor, not, uh, not, not old. In Swindon, Jarvis's challenge that evening came from the 16-year-old David Billington, a backup in Lancashire, the boy champion. Billington's career had already begun its meteoric trajectory that seemed dominating the amateur championships for the next four years, until he too would be stripped of his amateur status for swimming against professionals in the 1905 through Paris race on the Seine. In Doncaster, Nuttall took a commanding lead by the third length and beat Greasley easily by about 45 yards, setting a new professional record time of 6 minutes 36, lowering his own record by one and a half seconds and in a time that was over five seconds faster than Jarvis's amateur record. In Swindon, pressed hard by Billington, who stayed with him through 11 lengths of the 11 and one third lengths of the race, Jarvis not only broke, broke his own amateur record, but his time of six minutes 35 also took one and three quarter seconds off the new record set by Natal that evening. In the opinion of the local press, Jarvis has Billington to thank for being successful in lowering his record by seven and two fifth seconds, for the boy swimmer pressed him exceedingly close for half the distance. Um, and I've fallen behind myself here on the uh, on the on the screen, so I'll, I'll just update that slightly. Frustratingly, it's it's not possible from the respective accounts of the two events to know for sure the exact sequence uh, of, of events that evening, which leaves some questions unanswered. By 1901, it was entirely possible for the results of one race to have been conveyed to the other by telegram between the two railway towns, or even by telephone. The race in Doncaster had been due to start punctually at nine. And from evidence in the reports, we can confidently say that Nuttall's race finished before Jarvis's, where the programme was running late. Supporting life makes it clear that as far as the spectators in Doncaster were concerned, even at the end of the evening, they had no idea of the outcome of the race in Swindon. Those present, it said, had every reason to expect the new record to stand for some time. There was great surprise the following morning when they found out that Jarvis had not only broken his own previous record, but beat Nuttall's new time. This indicates that Nuttall's race finished first, but it leaves an answer to the question of when, and indeed how, the news from Swindon reached Doncaster. Although going by the stopwatch, some claim this race proved Jarvis was the fastest swimmer of all time, and fastest swimmer in the world. Direct comparisons could not be made on the night. As Sporting Life pointed out, Jarvis had swum his 500 yards over 11 and a third lengths in about 44 yards long whilst Nuttall had swum his in about 30 yards long over 16 and two-thirds lengths, giving him the advantage of more turns. However, Jarvis had the advantage of being closely pressed by Billington for virtually the whole race, finishing only nine seconds in front, while Nuttall finished over 40 yards ahead of Greasley. Even a cursory deconstruction shows exactly how the spaces of the two races as represented in the press, create a set of discourses which are transformed into relation to power. The modern Swindon baths project the paternalistic but progressive social values of the Great Western Railway around which the town was built, whose responsibility for the health of their workforce was financed by compulsory employee contributions to the company's medical fund, which funded the baths, and became a model for the future National Health Service. 
The design and construction of the baths themselves, skipping forward here. The design and construction of the baths themselves, so this is this is the Swindon baths where the uh, amateur uh, championship was, was swum. The steel spans supporting the roof made in the company's own carriage works represent technology and modernity, cleanliness, light and air, all consistent with the amateur values of the ASA. By contrast, the Doncaster baths dating from 1876, um, here's a photograph taken just before their demolition, so uh, it does give you an idea of the sort of dinginess of the baths, but uh, obviously even in, a, in an even worse condition um, once they've been derelict for a few years. So by contrast to, to, to how the, um, the Swindon baths were represented, the, the Doncaster baths, which dated from 1876, were represented in these accounts as outdated, unfit for purpose, unhygienic and dirty. Um, Geraint, writing in the referee, said, I do not like the Doncaster Corporation bath for any purpose. It's an odd length, spoilt by being nine inches over 30 yards. And he objected to its all-round dinginess. The Sporting Lives correspondent said that at a foot over 33 yards, it was not at all the easiest of places for a record performance, adding that since Nuttall beat Cavill back in 1897, uh, uh, no swimming race of any importance has been contested at Doncaster. He also noted that Nuttall had not been in his best form, owing to having suffered from diarrhoea for a fortnight prior to the race, and that unfortunately there had also been a good deal of smoking before the race, and this settled immediately on the water, adding that the effect of this on a man rushing at top speed and breathing impure air might be better imagined than described. So like professionalism itself, you see how the baths here are represented as anachronistic, tainted and impure. The Swindon race was organised by the local amateur swimming club under the jurisdiction of the national governing body. Its crowd, largely made up of members of the club and employees of the railway works and their families, was knowledgeable and orderly. That at Doncaster, promoted by a bookmaker for a crowd of racing men, for whom the main interest was betting, and compared to the capacity crowd that had attended the Nuttall versus Cavill race back in 1897, there was only moderate attendance. Now, many people saw these races and were aware of the simultaneity of the experience as it was happening, but many more experienced them through the mediation of press reports. This was reflected in the reports themselves, which highlighted what one called the singularity of the coincidence. Indeed, most reports focused on the simultaneity and the circumstances that made it necessary, that is the fact that ASA rules prevented them from swimming against each other, rather than the actual races themselves. Most papers reported them together, either in juxtaposition, one report above the other in the same column, or as a single report which, compressing time and space, framed them as if they had indeed been one race. The narrative created by the press was constructed around the respective times of the swimmers. This was most important. It was about comparing the two to see who had won, who was the better swimmer. The fact that they had both broken their respective records was incidental. The distance and ease with which they both ran, won, mere validation of their status as respective champions. And the factors that meant they were not really comparable dissolves the idea that these could be one race and highlights that they can't escape the contingent spatiality in which they took place. 
The space of modernity represented by the 1901 match that never was disrupted the divide between amateur and professional. The profile of Jarvis in the Dundee Evening Post in August 1900 had represented him as the epitome, the embodiment of amateur values and ethos. Practically a teetotaler and entirely a non-swimmer, he's not known what it is to be temporarily out of form while suffering from recovery, i.e. with a hangover. And his pursuit of the swimming pastime had been undertaken quite as much for personal pleasure as material gain. It constructed around Jarvis a discourse of the amateur athlete, not as one privileged by class, private means, education and entitlement, but as one who by his own hard work and dedication had been able to convert his cultural capital into social and financial capital. On his business successes, Jarvis practically founded his claim to the title of world long distance champion swimmer. Jarvis's success had brought, had brought him a, a hail of business orders from the people of Leicester, as a result of which, from journeyman painter, he had risen to be a substantial man of business. This is corroborated by an interview with George Farmer, the Australian champion, two years later, in 1902, who, having visited Jarvis at his home in Leicester, indeed described him as a master painter employing 25 hands who does all his local council's work. This had brought Jarvis the time to train and develop his technique as a swimmer. Remember, he'd previously employed Greasley, and he also had a pers close personal association with Nuttall. The improvement in Jarvis's swimming in 1893 coincided not just with him stepping up into his mentor's shoes, but a technical improvement, a radical technical improvement that came about from his first contact with Nuttall. In 1901, the Athletic News had commented, it may be stated that Jarvis and Nuttall are firm friends, and it should be credited to the Staley Bridge swimmer that he practically made Jarvis what he is. In his 1902 interview, George Farmer stated that Joey Nuttall lives with and trains Jarvis. It was Nuttall who taught Jarvis how to swim. As shown in this paper, it's clear that Jarvis drew on the experience and technical know-how of the professional Greasley, who he paid or employed to support his training, and of Nuttall. He was able to convert his financial success in his business to buy sporting success, which he used in turn to further increase his social and cultural capital as an amateur. Unlike the professional Nuttall, who after 1893 was unable to get a match, George Farmer described the amateur Jarvis as the brainiest man of all of the British swimmers, who takes no chances about losing a race, for if, he, if his prospects of success are at all doubtful, he won't swim. In fact, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that rather than risk his status in races, Jarvis exploited the rules governing record attempts to accumulate material wealth. Farmer's account is the most damning of these. His house, he says, is literally furnished with prizes, a piano, sideboard, tables, suites, etc., all worth altogether perhaps a thousand pounds. How does he do it? Well, when they want him to swim anywhere in England, Ireland or Scotland, he writes back agreeing to meet the local champion, providing a prize of say 20 or 30 pounds is forthcoming as inducement. And as the season is one round of such opportunities, you may guess how easily amateur Jarvis fills his house, his home with furniture. The number of handsome and valuable cups and shields and the great pile of gold medals he earned fairly staggered me 
I never thought it possible for one man to gather such a heap together. There's also a suggestion that from 1907, the ESA turned a blind eye to this, principally because Jarvis was not only the embodiment of amateur values and ethos, but his international success brought prestige to English swimming and by extension to the ASA. Jarvis was an amateur who behaved, behaved in every sense of the word in sporting as well as his business life like a professional which brought him the time and this would be exemplified by his later commodification of Nuttall's distinctive leg kick as the Jarvis Nuttall kick a brand which he effectively franchised through clubs around the country conjoining his name with that of Nuttall was the ultimate dissolving of the professional amateur distinction thank you well, thanks very much, Jeff. And uh, if people want to unmute to um, applaud, that was a really interesting paper and not as long as you predicted either. So um, we've got plenty of time for questions. Before we do take questions, I just want to remind people that our next uh, seminar will be given by Claire Tebbett on the 14th of June. So there won't be a seminar the weekend of the next bank holiday. And they will be talking about transgender sport uh, between the wars. And if you were at the conference in Liverpool two years ago, then you might have caught that paper there. It's a really good paper. Um, and it will be interesting to hear an, uh, an extended version of that paper. And um, that also reminds me that it is the BSSH conference uh, this year. We are having one this year in August. And uh, that will take place at uh, St Mary's Twickenham in the last week of um, August and uh, if you want to find out the details of that conference you can go to sportinhistory.org which is the website of the British Society of Sports History and you can also join the society if you go to that um, if you go to that website. Um, so having given you a bit of time to think about uh, questions I, I open the floor to people um, if you want to ask uh, Jeff Swallow um, something then fire away. Hi Jeff. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi Keith. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Well. Hi. Um, I was fascinated with uh, the concept of this uh, shared experiences in terms of uh, not all and Jarvis and uh, I've looked into aspects of Lancashire swimmers and um, I just wondered in terms of um, the Leicester connection, uh, in terms of the amateur and professional, and how the ASA view their relationship. And, um, you know, we just point, you pointed to the Jarvis not all kick. Um, Joey actually married uh, a girl from Leicester. Um, Joey's coach had a pub in Leicester and he used to swim and train in the local uh, canal and um, he appears on the 1901 census both in Staley Bridge and in Leicester and so there's a firm connection there and I wondered uh, have you got any information in terms of how the ASA viewed their relationship? Yes, I mean, I, I, I think, I think the, the the issue to do with the census uh, was actually the inspiration for the title of this 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 paper. 
because as you say, uh, not all the peers, both on the census uh, in Jarvis's house uh, um, in 1901, and uh, on the uh, the census was was a boarding house, I believe, in Stirling Bridge on the same on the same night. Now clearly he wasn't uh, in both of those places, uh, and whichever place he was in, which I, I think is probably uh, uh, with with the Jarvises. Uh, you know, it, it was that, as I said, that gave, gave me the idea of the man who wasn't there. I think that um, I think that uh, connection with with Jarvis, which, as I, as I argued in, in the in, in the paper, I think probably goes back uh, as, as as far as um, as as far as uh, eighteen ninety three, when when Greasley was was, was probably the, the connection between them. Um, it was a much much longer connection than than I at first thought, um, and and you know clearly he was he was there. Uh, they were seeing each other on a on a you know daily basis. They were they were they were training together. They were uh, you know undergoing this this fit uh, this uh, regime of, of of preparation for their respective races together. Um, and and that yeah I mean that was a much longer term relationship than than I I, I first realised uh, until I re researched this paper I wasn't aware of the the question marks over Joey's health um, which you know are, are, are quite interesting and, and and possibly account for you know the, the, the sort of downturn in in his fortunes uh, shortly afterwards. Um, I think the Greasley connection is 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 very uh, is is very significant, um, and and uh, has you know perhaps been overlooked. I think the the ASA were prepared to turn a blind eye to the uh, the relationship between uh, Jarvis and Nuttall in in terms of how it blurred the. Uh, amateur professional divide because um, as a as a way that Jarvis projected English swimming overseas uh, in, in 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 Europe particularly um, was actually in the interest of the, the ASA. Um, as as you all know, uh, his um, his sister. Uh, was uh, went went to the 1908 Olympics chaperone to to the, um, the, the the British women's team, um, and Jarvis's wife also became a very important figure in the uh, Midlands Amateur Swimming Association. So I think there are a lot of connections there worth worth exploring, and I think you know a, a lot of uh, I think quite. Good arguments to be made for for why the ASA were prepared to turn a blind eye to um, to to uh, you know the as I said, this blurring of the of the line between the amateur and the professional. Um, do we have any more questions from uh, from people in the audience? Oh, Raf, uh, do you want to come through? Thanks, Jeff. Um, really interesting paper. Um, does Jarvis kind of go on and inspire others to follow in his footsteps in terms of um, sort of breaking down these boundaries between amateurism and professionalism and those those definitions? The, 
the thing that I think did that more than anything, which uh, is, is a sort of entirely separate thing to, to what I was talking about in the paper, uh, but I think has been somewhat overlooked in, in the, the history of, of, of swimming, is the important role that water polo played uh, in that. Because I think it was, the, it was the emergence of water polo that, first of all, consolidated the, the club as the, you know, the, regulatory, uh, the regulatory framework for, for what was going on in the districts. Um, and allowed the ASA to consolidate its uh, jurisdiction over, over the districts and its, its and, and to become a, a genuine national organisation uh, uh, through you know it was it was through the setting up of, of uh, you know uh, in inter club water polo league county leagues etc. and there you were getting people who were who who crossed that class divide. Um, you had people playing in the same team, or certainly teams playing against each other, uh, who, who were, you know, from completely different different classes. And, and anyone who has ever seen or played water polo will, will know, you know, it's a very very high contact sport. Um, you did get that, that mixing of the classes in in a way that you didn't get in competitive swimming, you still didn't get in competitive swimming um, because, you know, there was still this sort of idea that the, the amateur sport wasn't a working class sport. So I think, I think that's, what made the big, that's what made the big difference. And um, who, you know, would then, would then take, the, take the sport on. It's 1908, of course, the, the, the dominance of the, 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 the English swimmer is fading rapidly and, you know, you're getting the, the, uh, the Americans and the Australians coming through. Um, and, uh, you know, as you'll have noticed from the pa paper there, um, the, the people that uh, Nuttall was managing to get matches with, you know, they were Australians, they were Americans, they weren't people in, in, in this country. Um, so, you know, you could argue that it, it was professional swimming that opened out swimming in, in, into a genuinely international sport initially. Thank you. Okay, um, while we wait to see if anybody else is asking a question, I've just got something of my own. I, forgive me if I missed it at the beginning of the paper, Jeff. Um, um, did you give us some details about um, Jarvis's social background? Um, because, you know, the amateurism that I'm kind of familiar with is more from sort of southern England and that kind of Midlands amateurism. Yeah. Maybe you could just comment about well, that. Yes, I mean, his, his, his social background, very, very briefly, was uh, he, he was he was the son of a, a painter and decorator, a house painter, and he himself followed in, 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 that, in that profession. Um, but uh, obviously, his his um, his cultural capital as a, as a, as a swimmer enabled him to enabled him to uh, to work. Uh, he had the contract to do all of the um, Leicester Corporation painting jobs, uh, which you know must have been a pretty substantial uh, amount of work. Um, 
and he, he, he was employing people to do it. He wasn't doing it himself. So he didn't make that transition, you know, from being, as Farmer said, a, a journeyman painter to being a, a quite prosperous and highly respectable businessman. Um, That's kind of interesting. So he's not public school or he doesn't go no. to university or anything like no, that. No. So it, it really is the sport that makes him socially acceptable or is... Or is um, it, it does more yeah. than that. It doesn't just make him socially acceptable. It actually makes him, you know, a, a very, very respond, uh, re, re, very, very respectable and respected citizen. Aside from, and you know, quite prosperous. I think each of us, you know, the more successful his business becomes, the more he can afford the time mm. to, to to train. You know, it, it becomes. It becomes that amateur ideal, you know, the, the, the gentleman of leisure, or if, if not leisure, at least the gentleman of independent means. Except, you know, they're not independent. It's money that he's earning from 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 his business, but it's that that finances his uh, his swimming career, and then just, he applies the same principles to his swimming career, uh, and and you know pushes at the limits of the limits of um, of amateurism. In a very, very blatant way. But before we sign off, I just want to say thank you to Jeff and invite people to clap. And uh, this um, session will be going out as a podcast on the Sporting History Podcast. So um, do um, let your friends know if you have other swimming enthusiasts in your in your social circle who weren't able to come along today. And there aren't any others. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Jenny. Have a good evening, everyone.